Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, this opportunity to reflect on your birth, but also on your return. And so, Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us this morning that we might see Jesus not just as the humble child who came in, the, in a manger, but also as the returning king who will make all things new. And so open our eyes to who Jesus is and awaken faith in every single one of us that it might change our lives. God, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me, but speak to every person here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our season of Advent in December, we have been actually going through the book of Revelation, which is weird, I'll be honest. We've been getting to the end of a a long sermon series all the way through the Bible called The Thread, and in, in which we were preaching one sermon from every book of the Bible. And so we landed at the beginning of December in Revelation, but rather than just ending it there, we spent four weeks essentially saying, contrasting during this season of Advent as we anticipate the coming of Jesus, what, what's different between his first coming and his second coming. And I don't know about you guys, but it has been really good for my soul. It has stirred longing and hope within me. And today's passage, I think, is the crown jewel in the Bible. Everything is pointing toward it. But if you haven't been here with us, if you're just here on Christmas Eve, I'll catch you up really quick. If you're just here because you feel relationally obligated to someone, don't worry, I see you. I'll catch you up. And my prayer is that you would see Jesus as he is and that that would be both a comforting and a terrifying thing and that you would find hope in the gospel. So here's where we've been so far as we've looked at Jesus's first and second advents are coming. In the first advent, Jesus came in lowly poverty. That's the stable and the sheep and the shepherds. But in the second advent, the risen Jesus will come with power and glory. In the first advent, Jesus came to fulfill the promises of God's people. But in the second advent, Jesus, the risen Jesus, will finish the story of God's people. In the first advent, Jesus was killed by evil. But in the second advent, the risen Jesus will defeat evil forever. And then what we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22 today, in the first advent, Jesus came to dwell in a world that he had made. In the second advent, the risen Jesus will make all things new. John 1.14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God who created the world with the mere power of His words took on a human body and dwelt with us. He came near to us. He became a human. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus came to dwell in the world that he made, and he revealed to us more fully who God the Father is, full of grace and full of truth. But when Jesus returns, he won't just dwell among us. He will do that. He will make all things in this world new. The whole story of human history is building up to the moment that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. So let me read a portion of you of it for you. And as I do so, I pray that it would stir hope and longing in your soul as it has mine. So Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jumping down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's hard to read those words without tears forming in the corner of my eyes. The more funerals I do, the more suffering I see, the more families I pray with when the words cancer ring in the background, the more people I sit with trying to make sense of broken marriages or an ongoing battle with mental illness, the more that these verses stir within me a longing for Jesus to come back and to make all things new. The more you watch the news and hear about natural disasters, about wars that ravage the globe, about people starving and lacking the most basic human essentials, the more you long for these verses to hasten to their fulfillment the more that indwelling sin frustrates us and grieves us, the more we long for the battle to be won forever, don't we? And so we join with creation itself, groaning, longing for the day of our redemption, longing for the curse of sin to not just be defeated, but fully and completely eradicated once and for all. We long for the day that we read about in Revelation 21. And 22. Because a new city's coming. 
the new Jerusalem, and unlike Babylon that we read about in Revelation 18, the city of rebellion against God that will be completely eradicated and destroyed, this city, this new Jerusalem, this city that is the people of God will go on forever, and it will be characterized by four things. Here's our outline today. It will be a suffering-free city. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It will be a beautiful and joy-filled city, like a bride adorned for her husband. It is a temple city with the presence of God once more fully with us, and it will be a garden city, a lush paradise, Eden, the home that we long for that will truly bring healing to our soul. The first thing that strikes us about this city is that it is a city that is free from human suffering. We are told that death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, in dying and rising from the dead, Jesus has now defeated death. He has overcome the curse of sin, and so that when he comes, he will make all things new, and there will be no more death or suffering or pain in this new city. And all of us who have lost a loved one suffered the loss of pain and grief, having to say goodbye way too soon. Hear this and we say amen and are filled with longing for that day. And all those who have dealt for years with chronic pain, asking God to heal you and to, bring it, to take it away, cry out amen and long for this day. And all those who have battled for years with mental illness or depression or crippling anxiety, wondering if you're ever going to experience real peace in our midst, dealt with the pain this year of betrayal by someone that you love close to you, or you've experienced the ache of loneliness and you wonder if anybody really cares and wants to be with you, or maybe you've, you've experienced uh, the devastation of a failed marriage. You read these words and you say, amen. You long for that day in a new way this year. Kids, can you imagine life without any more sadness? Without any more pain? No more getting sick? No more fights with your siblings? Normal, no more struggle to share your toys? That's what those who put their hope in Jesus can long for. That's what those who believe in him can hope for. And you too can hope for this day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. But it's interesting that when we talk about suffering, God doesn't just promise to eradicate suffering in general. He gets way more personal than that. We read in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. You see, suffering is so deeply personal, isn't it? And where God meets us in our suffering, we know him in ways that are unique and special to us. Now, suffering is both universal and, the, and, and as a human experience, it unites us. And yet it's deeply personal and unique to each of us because no one else was betrayed by a relationship just like that or experienced the brokenness of that marriage or experienced the devastation of that pain or that bone break or that fill in the blank. And the way that God has to meet us in our suffering makes intimacy with him in this life so unique and special, doesn't it? He has to uniquely fill our cracks as the things that we long for and the things that typically fill those come up short, we actually have to lean on God more and we know him uniquely in the midst of our suffering. And so on that day, 
When he wipes away the tears from our eyes, there will be a moment of deep understanding that passes between you and Jesus. The one who is with you through all of those things, he will look each of us in the eye and you will know those moments were not wasted. But they are in the past. Your suffering is no more and it will be redeemed. It's not just personal suffering that's eradicated. The earth will be fundamentally different. The curse that has tormented all of creation will be removed and defeated once and for all. That's why we sing a a bold declaration in our Christmas songs like Joy to the World. No more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And when Jesus came for the first time, we got a glimpse of this, didn't we? We got an appetizer, a taste, as he declared the good news to the poor, as he demonstrated his healing touch, the blind saw the deaf, hear the lame walk. Those who were demon-possessed were set free. We're getting glimpses of the curse being eradicated at every level, and yet it was just an appetizer. It wasn't the whole meal. We see it in glimpses and pockets where Jesus goes, but it's not this worldwide cataclysmic changing that was to come. And that's what's being promised in Revelation 21, that he will make those things no more. Suffering will be eradicated. He says in verse 1 that the sea will be no more, and all the surfers in our midst are like, oh man. Unless, of course, he's speaking metaphorically and not actually going to eradicate the world of dolphins and sea turtles and clownfish and the like. But rather, as you understand the scriptures, the sea was the place of chaos and anger and natural disasters. In the ancient world, that was the place of danger. And even in Revelation, that's where the beast comes from. And so when it says the sea will be no more, he is saying that chaos and natural disasters will be no more. The earth will be fundamentally changed. The the king declares, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Remember the last time Jesus said that? It is finished. It is done. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And God, and he will be his God and he will be my son. This city will be safe, and it will be free from human suffering, but it will also be beautiful and filled with joy, like a bride adorned for her wedding day. As a pastor, especially a pastor of a young church, I have the privilege of officiating a lot of weddings, and let me tell you, there are very few things like a bride on her wedding day. It takes a while for her to prepare dresses and makeup and hair and nails and all the stuff I'm not actually all that interested in, but I have never been at a wedding where the bride wasn't radiant. And she is the center of attention, and when she starts walking down the aisle, everybody stands and all eyes focus on her, but as the pastor who's officiating, in that moment, I almost always look just to the left of me and I see the groom's face, my favorite part of the wedding. And sometimes I feel like i got to catch him, right? Like he's just stunned, right? That is the picture that we are meant to get in our minds of the new Jerusalem coming. It is a city, but it is also a people, and she is beautiful. We are beautiful. We are finally as we should be. 
And like a wedding feast and celebration, there is joy abounding. It is a celebration. And just as human weddings are covenantal or relational in nature, once again we hear the powerful covenantal language of God. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God comes to dwell with us. It is a joyful celebration. It is a suffering-free celebration. But the joy also helps us make sense of the final two metaphors that we see in this chapter. That it is a temple city and that it is a garden city. First, a temple city. The dimensions that we read about in verse 16 of this city is that it is a cube. 1,200 stadia on all sides. That's about 1,400 to 1,500 miles long or the distance between Maine and Florida. And we see that it's a cube. It's as long and wide as it is high, right? And so it could be a city like that. Or maybe when you stop and think about it and you think Mount Everest is about six miles high and even there it's hard to breathe, maybe it's actually a metaphor or a symbolic thing like the rest of Revelation that's helping us see something about what it will be like. It should, it should force us to ask the question, do we ever see something that is cube-shaped in the Old Testament? And as we reread the words, we think, oh yeah, the holy of holies, the place in the innermost part of the temple or the tabernacle where God's glory was said to visibly dwell, the place that only one human being, the high priest, could go once a year in order to make atonement for the people. That is what it's meant to symbolize. Everything about the language of the city is meant to evoke pictures of the temple between the stones that are used in its construction, the same stones as that on the priest's ephod. This is meant to help us understand that in this new city, the whole thing will be where the presence of God is. The whole thing will be a temple because God's presence will be with us. There is no longer any separation between a holy God and a sinful people because in Christ, our sins have been washed away and we are once again invited to dwell with him. So all of creation becomes the temple of God. The whole city is a temple. But then the imagery switches in chapter 22 from that of a temple to that of a garden. And we read that it's not just a temple city, it's actually a garden city too. It's home. It's Eden. Isn't it interesting that the biblical story begins with God creating and placing mankind in a garden and it ends with God once again dwelling with mankind in a garden begins and ends in the same place. Inside the city is where the garden is that God walks with his people. We are no longer separated from him. We are home. And we read about a tree there, the tree of life, meant to evoke images of Genesis 2 and 3, but also images of the cross. But this tree then produces fruit that then becomes the healing of all the nations. And there is a river there, which is an allusion to Ezekiel 47, a river that flows from the temple that brings life and freshness to all that it encounters. All of these illustrations are pointing ahead to one thing. We will be with him. We'll dwell with him. The story of Christmas is the story of Emmanuel, God crossing the chasm to dwell near us. But none of us would argue that he's here like he was here. But in the future, we see that God will once again dwell with his people and that will be the place of greatest joy and safety and intimacy and life. That is what our hearts and our souls long for more than anything. See, I would rather 
live in a tiny shack with Liz than in a mansion without her? It's not even a hard question. Because I would rather be with her than not with her. I would rather celebrate Christmas with saltine crackers and gifts bought from the dollar store than celebrate Christmas without one of my kids there because something tragic happened. And I bet you would too. See, these relationships, while sweet, don't even begin to compare with the relationship between God and his people. The relationship that we're meant to have with him. What makes heaven so amazing is that God is there with us. Not just the absence of suffering, which will be great. Not just the reunion of loved ones who also love Christ, which I can't wait for. But Jesus will be fully and completely with his people. Our faith will become sight. It won't just be spiritual anymore. That's what makes heaven, heaven. A union of heaven and earth. It is a suffering-free city. It is a beautiful and a joy-filled city. It is a temple city. And it is a garden city. And I can't wait. And Christmas has a way of creating all kinds of longings in us that no human celebration can fully fulfill. You ever get that sense after Christmas of like, that was good, it wasn't quite what I was longing for? It's because it's meant to echo something deeper. It's meant to point ahead to this day when Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. Now these promises are also coupled with some warnings that make it feel all the, all the Christmas feels, doesn't it? <laughs> the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And we're like, yes! And then it warns us in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And we're like, well, Merry Christmas. So how do I have the first heritage, not the second? I mean, some of you are like, well, no sorcery this morning, right? But maybe, maybe a little lie, maybe a, a broken promise, maybe you didn't murder anyone, but if we're honest with some of the commands of the Bible, we're, this warning actually hits us kind of hard, and we're like, wait a second, I'm the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. How do I have... The first heritage. And the answer to that question is the good news of the gospel. I see that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus were done for me. That my sin separated me from God, but, but Christmas helps us to celebrate God drawing close to us. He took on our humanity. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but didn't. And he did it without sin. He then took the penalty for our sin and died on the cross, paying it in full. But then rising in death, he conquered death. He died for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. He died for us that we might have his heritage by faith. And so how do I become one of those conquerors? I trust in the Son and what he has done. I long for his return. I trust in his finished work rather than my own. And I believe the good news of the gospel. And then this legacy, this heritage that Jesus has earned becomes mine. In the first advent, Jesus came to dwell in a world that he made. In the second advent, the risen Jesus will make all things new. I know what kind of year some of you had. And for others of you, I, I can't even begin to imagine the year you've had. 
But there will be a day when your pain and your suffering is no more. And he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And he will dwell with you. Let that day fill this day with hope and longing. Amen? And so as the people of God, we pray the prayer that Revelation ends with, which is this. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that as we ponder the first coming of Jesus, that we can also look forward with great hope to his second. God, this world is both beautiful and it is broken. You have come to redeem and you have begun making things new and yet there is so much old that remains and so we long for the day when suffering will be at an end. We long for the day when joy will be the norm. We long for the day when we can dwell with you in your presence. We long with Long for the day when earth is once again a paradise that we get to walk with you. And so Jesus, hasten that day and come soon. We pray in your name. Amen.